Welcome to Friars and Film. We are three Catholic priests from the Order of Preachers, and we're here, as always, to talk about the movies. Welcome back, everyone, to the podcast. This is one of our quickest turnaround episodes. We have, in, in the course of one week, we have a new film, The Tragedy of Macbeth, by Joel Cohen, just came out on New Year's Day. It stars Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand as Lady Macbeth. I'll just give a brief intro, a little bit of information on Macbeth as a play by Shakespeare, or as many records call him, Shaq Spar. Did you, did you friars know that? You aware of that pronunciation? No. no. Well, that's why we're here to educate as well. A Secret Catholic, you can read about that in other places of the internet, uh, what they call a recusant, uh, with his father. And so I'll give a few notes just to start us off on the play Macbeth and then also this film. Um, so we have the basic plot, which is unlike most Shakespearean tragedies. Uh, Shakespeare based a lot of his tragedies according to the classic principles. You could read this in Aristotle's Poetics. There's a, a noble hero... But despite his many good qualities, he has a tragic flaw. The tragedy happens over time. Macbeth is interesting in that the tragedy, the murder of the general, Scottish general Macbeth, of Duncan the king, it happens right at the start of the play, and especially with the special encouragement of his wife. And then it's actually more of a, a tragedy in reverse. It's not what leads up to the murder and the, and the great sorrow and reaction. It's actually the psychology of the murderer as he carries his guilt. So there's, we could, we could of course discuss that. I just, the last two notes on Shakespeare are that where is he sort of in the line of all of his many plays? I think it's worth mentioning that this is one of his last plays in 1606. This is towards the very end of his career. So he's crossed over from writing for Elizabeth I and now you have King James, who has who has roots in Scotland, and that makes sense that he would pull from... Shakespeare doesn't directly adopt Scottish history, but he takes the historic character of Macbeth, who had reigned for ten years, and he makes him the murderer, and he introduces the character of Lady Macbeth. So Shakespeare's being at once creative, but it's creative um, historic fiction. It is based on some past tales of usurping the throne. And the other thing, too, which we'll say about the Scottish influence, is that the king himself went er earlier, in the late 1500s, King James had written a philosophical dissertation, basically called demonology. It's, it's about witches, spells, that whole world of superstition and uh, illicit practices, which, which still go on, I think, to some degree today. But this whole, you know, the, the, these are other main characters, the weird sisters, as Shakespeare calls them, these witches. That element, the Scottish kingship element, a lot of this is an appeal to Shakespeare's new patron, King James. And a last note, too, for historic context, this was published the year after the gunpowder plot, you know, the attempt of bombing Parliament. So, so it's timely in that London itself is very much stirred up by these attempts against government and parliament. So I think it's worth noting 
that Shakespeare isn't just writing pure pure dramas just kind of because he was in the mood for this kind of story. It it, it it comes out of the cloth of his time. The other thing, too, I want to talk about is Denzel Washington in particular. Why is he doing Shakespeare? Denzel actually mentioned, we, we all... We all have stories about loving Denzel because he's one of the greatest actors of our age. I mean, maybe for you it was Remember the Titans. Maybe it was Training Day, if your parents allowed you to watch that in high school. Both great performances. Um, But Denzel did, in the last couple years, actually make public statements in saying he's going towards more serious, classic, artistic projects and not so much in the Hollywood direction. He started acting, so I looked this up very briefly, in 2005 is when he began acting in Shakespeare. So he was in um, Richard III. Oh, no, I'm sorry, that, that was earlier. And if you've ever, if you know Shakespeare, Richard III, like Macbeth, is a, a very uh, troubled, dark king. Now is the winter of our discontent. He played Brutus, who murders Julius Caesar in 2005. He's gotten into other shows. So there's, I, I would just say that this is, for me, on a personal standpoint... Macbeth was the very first Shakespeare show after reading some Shakespeare in junior high and high school. Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar, Much Ado About Nothing, Midsummer Night's Dream. It's the first time I, I actually ever saw Shakespeare acted in on a live stage, which was at Franciscan University of Steubenville. I was a senior in high school, so that really roped me in. And so there's personal love for Macbeth. And I also, too, Denzel is one of my favorite actors. So to see those two combined is exciting. We'll talk about the movie in detail. But that's my opening question is, how, do you, how have you, Friars, approached Shakespeare? You know, before we go into the details of this film, give us a little backstory. The one that starts, like you just mentioned now, is the winner of our discontent. That's the one where the king goes on to kill many of the people who are potentially in line for the throne is that correct okay so um so yeah me it's funny to hear you mention that because that uh that for me was also um it wasn't the first shakespeare play i saw acted out but it was the first shakespeare play that i ever saw that like knocked my socks off in high school the royal shakespeare company from england they they came and did some productions up in ann arbor michigan I went up there because a friend of mine lived up there, and uh, we saw them produce them their, their production of Richard III. And it, I remember sitting. We had really good seats close to the front of the whole stage, and um, I was spellbound for the full something like four hours of of that play. And so the, Richard III will always. Um, remain with me even though i get it mixed up with richard ii it nonetheless um, always remains with me as um, the one of the high watermarks for my experience with theater um, one thing that really struck me about that production it was was how minimal the staging was it was very stripped down and bare and for me what that did is it allowed the actors to really shine forth in their own charisma and i think that's something that we can talk about regarding this uh, movie production of macbeth in high school, I watched the Kenneth Branagh movies, Hamlet. And Kenneth and Branagh then, is best of the best. I mean, he, yeah. you appreciate even the, the words themselves, which everybody normally gets bogged down in. He has a way of just treating them as normal language, and you're like, oh, this is doable. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, and then a lot of us went to the Shakespeare Theater in D.C. So, which gave student was, was tickets, right? They were like $15 student tickets if you called in. 
once you and I sat in the front, I think, at uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Right. And we also, saw, we also saw my favorite show, The Tempest, together. I mean, that, that's actually a good um, diving board into another first theme besides Shakespeare. I also wanted to talk about style, because the style of this film, as Father Luke said, is minimalist. It's sort of this interesting blend between, you know, first it's black and white. And I think we took a lot of students up here at Dartmouth to see it right when they got back for the semester. And they shared my bias. They all admitted that, you know, I had trouble at the first few minutes because it was black and white. I said, hey, welcome to the 21st century. And I, I, hadn't, I hadn't watched the previews, so I didn't know that either. I had expected differently. But there was sort of that film noir, but, 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 but it wasn't just sort of old cinema. As you were saying, Father Luke, it's this really interesting blend between stage props and a moving camera and cinema. It's, it's something as we talked about over the phone, to say, hey, let's do this film because it's great in acting and plot, but it's also a style that we've never really seen before. And I, I say that, as I said, as a follow-up comment to Father Allen, you mentioning we had gone to the Shakespeare Theatre Company in D.C., one of my pet peeves is how everybody takes, because there's, they treat Shakespeare so old hat, saying we have to dress it up in some new way. So it's always... You know, I mean, sometimes it works, but we had seen Midsummer Night's Dream. It was sort of, sort of Grecian, like the original, but also sort of style-wise, it was mixed with, with sort of gadgets and gears and, and technology. And then we had seen, you know, the Romeo and Juliet, Father Allen, which was like black and white, the race thing. Didn't you meet the Black Juliet on the DC Metro the next week? I don't. Rem- I remember meeting one of the actresses. But no, I don't remember. I remember who that she played. Oh yeah. I mean, okay. when you meet Juliet. <laughs> well, you, you apparently Juliet. I forget. Or, or for instance, like they had much ado about nothing, and it was set in, in Havana, Cuba. You know, and or, or they or they set Titus Andronicus classically in Nazi Germany. Sometimes it works, but there's always a spectrum. And and I I have a thirst after all of this fooling around for just some classic Shakespeare. Please put it back in its original setting and have confidence in that. I think Kenneth Branagh does that with his films, and I also think even though it was a little bit minimalist, this film, the style I thought was Scottish enough where that pet peeve was not aggravated, if that makes sense. But what else do we have on style? Yeah, that's also a pet peeve for me. I get so tired of operas and Shakespeare productions where it's it's it just becomes a huge spectacle of okay how can we make this as exciting for the eye as possible and that that is cool and and fun but um, it doesn't really touch on the deepest magic to me of of the stage which is to see the human form and the human person navigate these dramatic situations just by virtue and you see and you see that coming through to you just just by virtue of the dialogue and their own command of uh the character that they're embodying and, and to me that that is the real magic and um so so yeah no this this film i thought did a great job at at doing that and i think you know uh, oftentimes when you put shakespeare on film yeah you're it's easy to get caught up in recreating the whole um to to, to the minutest detail you know what this uh, Scottish world would look like, but um, I love Joel Cohen's decision to just be like, no, we're gonna make this like, kind of like you're on this stage, um, with just these um, these Im- giving you these imp- impressions of like a castle, a moor, a hill, 
a sky. It feels like these little stage props that are just kind of placed on the stage in, in, the, in a most discreet way, which, again, um, allows the viewer to really notice the, what really, really, really matters, which is, is the character that, that is being presented. And, um, and I, I just want to offer a tiny little reflection on that, which that, that, that kind of is the way, the reality of, of what it is to be a human person walking through this created world where, um, yes, everything besides the human person, it does matter. It does have its own goodness. It is its own created world, which has its own integrity that God has given it. But when it really comes down to it, I mean, it's only the human person that has an eternal soul. And so, you know, when, if we could look around in the world with uh, spiritual eyes, so to speak, and see um, what God sees, you, you would kind of see, yeah, these infinitely these these creatures of infinite worth which are the human person walking about in these in this world which is ultimately a passing world and so um that experience which which the viewer has watching watching Macbeth of seeing these human forms which are clearly representing so so much so much meaning and um and worth walking about along a stage of of shadows almost um there, there's something i think that that, that that communicates a deep spiritual uh, reality. Yeah, I think the black and white conveys the tone, so it, it it sort of positively contributes to setting the tone because the witches really set the tone. They say the first thing they lay down, the baseline, if you will, and and it is a tragic film uh, and a dark film. So there's this pallor, there's this lifelessness that's really appropriate. The minimalism also continues that lifelessness. It's not organic. Even the earth is rocky and bare. The beauty of Shakespeare is in the words, you know, and it does even on film make you f- listen more than watch. If the set is simple, you're not gonna, you're gonna listen more. You know, I, I, I asked um, a professor last year who I was befriending and this and that, and he's a medieval literature and Renaissance literature professor, and he's, and he's British. And I kind of asked him simply, why do, why do British people tend to dress up their words, even in just greeting each other for lunch? Or, I mean, even words we'd know, you know, like I remember going to the airport in London and seeing the sign. So there was like men's and women's restrooms, and then there was a sign that said nursery. And I was just in awe. Like there's a, there's a nursery in the airport. Now, what they actually meant, what the Americans say, is a baby changing table, that plastic thing. <laughs> Just like, why? why? I mean, that, that's a minimal example of the English elaborations of language and saying things in lovely ways and dressing them up. And I asked him, why is that culturally? And why does England, this small little island, have some of the most powerful poets and creative minds? And this is not a definitive conclusion, but he said, I've always wondered if it's because we English physically are not the most beautiful like italians or greeks he's like so instead like we make up for that with our words and i think there might be something there about analogous to any sort of like like that that is also the logic of theater nowadays when you go to a broadway show like wicked or the lion king or one of these things there's really impressive pyrotechnics or the chandelier falls in at the intermission of Phantom of the Opera. And even for a theater goer of today, there's something a little off. It's just like, I didn't really come here to see 
like machine stuff on stage. Like there's an expectation in theater that we're, we're like like the English people themselves. We're here to rely on the words. The minimalism of the stage over the centuries is is is, is for the sake of the words, and it, that's the art form. You know, I mean, I mean, even even the word persona in Greek. You know, it's it's the mask you'd wear. I mean, just you wouldn't even change costumes. You just put a mask, and then you're a new character because it's so. Because I think that it, it, it makes me reflect on the mode of theater itself uh, relies nearly 100% on words. We've tried to veer away from that to entertain people, but uh, that's, not, that's, not the, that's not the mode at bottom. Now let's talk about the theme, too. I think sin, right? Can we? I mean, this, this, sure. this, this, this is a meditation on the effects of sin. It's not falling in love. It's not actually very political. It's more about... I think of it as a parallel somewhat with Hamlet. Hamlet's meditating on... He's meditating on the guilt he might... He might acquire by murdering his 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 uncle. This is sort of after the fact. But I, I think it's... Uh, I think it's it has all the ancient Catholic sentiments of this is why we're against sin is because it destroys the heart, simply put. And that's exactly... Yeah, the, the, I think the whole idea um, or the, the big theme of the... The play is that yeah he he begins by asking himself okay should I commit this evil act so he's aware that it's wrong um, and that the uh, this act that his his wife is in, goading him on to, to to commit he's aware it's wrong but but he decides to commit it um, and then the whole rest of the play is, is him discovering the perennial fundamental human truth that it's impossible to commit evil without becoming yourself disordered. And so, um, yeah, he chooses to commit a disordered act, and and then it's uh, the whole rest of the play is him experiencing him all his own his own person descend into disorder. Lady Macbeth, she also finds herself beginning to waste away. So yeah, I, I am what I do. I, what my my deed cannot be separated from what I myself become. There's a little but, bit of a theme of fate too, because the sin is sort of prophesied by the witches. As if he couldn't, and I'm not. I'm not saying Shakespeare is concluding that it's all bound. You know, we're bound by fate, but that's always that's the Greek tragedy material he's borrowing from as well. Is our our actions, you know, set already? It's always this interplay, the question between freedom and fate. That connection between the the sisters and his experience of of evil. I, I love the cauldron scene, and one really kind of innovative thing that I that. Cohen does with that scene is that it's not just three three witches dancing around a, a typical cauldron. It's rather like he himself, you know, is sitting in this room and it's almost like a vision where like this cauldron sort of sprouts up in the room itself. And what that suggests, I think, is that he himself is in the cauldron. You know, he, it's, it's not something that he's looking at. He himself is part of it, which is, which is again, analogous to, uh, his experience of committing that evil act. He, he cannot be a, a bystander to it. It ends up becoming a part of him, and he becomes a part of it. Yeah, there's some kind of connection between the ambiguity of the witches, of the paranormal, and the ambiguity of pagan politics. In the Republic, the question is, what's at the bottom of politics of political life? Is it might or right? And Plato wants to say it's right. Justice is really the foundation for things. And, of course, Christianity would affirm that and more strongly. And I think 
This is almost always the case with Shakespeare, that, well, maybe in a different way in the comedies, but what you have is some kind of mixture, some kind of crossroads between the pagan world and the Christian world. It seems like Macbeth, the character, is he sort of gets caught up in the swamp, the ambiguity of the paranormal and the political in the, at the pagan level. The witches are ambiguous because they're not all-powerful. They're not real gods. You know, they're not angels serving God. They're, they're just kind of there as a feature of, of the invisible realm. They don't control the future. They sort of forecast it. And they don't really tell you straightforwardly what's going on. The prophets of the Old Testament are obscure in a way that's much different from, say, the Delphic Oracle in Herodotus or ancient texts where the oracles, it's almost as if they want to trick you. So there's some kind of connection between the ambiguity of the, of the supernatural world, the invisible world, and just the instability of politics, because everybody knows that you should be loyal. But then what if you get the chance to seize power? Macbeth in the light of day can go off and, and fight treachery and serve the king. But then when he himself all of a sudden has the opportunity to become king, does he have... Does he feel that actually justice is, in the end, the final arbiter? Or is it really all power deep down? You know, like, how, how is kingship established? Is it, is it established by justice or by power? So I think he start, sort of starts out in the pagan world, but then as the, the play progresses and his conscience gains the upper hand, you could say, or at least the penalization of his um, injustice begins to manifest, I think that's when the Christian world really starts to show up. Because I don't think in a purely pagan film that conscience would be such a problem. I don't think that Lady Macbeth would commit suicide so easily, and I don't think that you know Macbeth's comeuppance at the end would feel so uh, logical or, or so necessary. And you can even see Lady Macbeth, she almost wants her punishment at some point. It's too difficult to go on living, and she just wants some kind of response. Macbeth is trying to be pagan in a Christian world, I and think it doesn't work, doesn't work out. It's very well said, and, and in any Christian world, no matter whether you obey the promptings of grace, to have a nature baptized, all the other sacraments, I mean, there's, this is true even in our own lives, of paganism, which was fallen nature, which wasn't questioned as much, you do read in, in ancient, I mean, you, you study the Persians and others, and there's just, there's not, this, there's not this sensitivity of remorse and guilt. It's just you, if you have to kill, if you have to move, if you have to do this, you do so and you move on. I mean, even other areas aside from violence, like, you know, monogamy, which is from the beginning, was largely forgotten. And there's this desensitized ancient pagan approach is just like well that's how it is like who's but there you're, you're right as we find ourselves much later and that's still true today as we find ourselves in a graced nature but still wanting to behave like pagans and we're in this middle this middle ground as sinners not just pagans but now as sinners where we have all of these sensitivities and conscience issues which come from the fact that we were healed and then threw it off you know I think that's, yeah, it's, it's very different from sainthood or paganism. It's the something in the middle. I also will just say that when it comes to the witches, I think you made a great point, Father Allen, the difference between Old Testament prophets. They have a greater clarity. They're in the will of God versus those obscure omens. And even these witches, 
their forecastings, their predictions are maybe not certain because they, they could be very much in the form of temptation. It's almost like a, a drawing in Macbeth towards sin under the guise of knowledge, you know. And I, I do think that's mm-hmm. probably true of evil. Evil doesn't have any providential control, but it can, with some obscure knowledge, use that to tempt. And that's worth being, for our part, even in lesser ways, being intelligent about. The witches are were so well portrayed as Cohen was able to use them to speak, I, I think, very eloquently about the nature of evil, or, like, or rather the unnature un- of evil. And uh, I mean, the first time you see the witches, uh, you're just seeing one of them, and it's she's holding herself in this sort of contortionist way. And um, and so you're, you're, just, you're just seeing these these limbs and these strange directions, and and that to me communicates, you know, just the disorder of evil. But I was even more struck by the way that there's always this confusion of identity in the presentation of the witches. So initially, right, there's just one of them, and then in their reflection, as as that one of, that one figure is standing close to the lake, you suddenly the camera turns back and you see two others reflected in the lake so now okay is that is it just two or is it three if you include both of the reflections as 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 an actual entity so yeah is it one is it two is it three um and then of course you know similarly the um the witches appear sometimes like crows or ravens or something right and then other times as an old man other times as an old woman which all of which speaks to me that of, of the way that evil, you know, what does it do? It just, it shatters the self. It destroys the, the integrity of the self. There's that line in the gospel where Jesus asks the man who's possessed by the demon, you know, what, what is your name? And he says, we are many, right? We are, we are legion. So that, that, that person by being possessed by an evil spirit is, um, he has lost his own integrity of his own self and he has been shattered in a sense it's particularly interesting when you think of the way that yeah it, it's you can't tell if they're one or three and of course what that immediately makes a christian think of is kind of an inverse of the trinitarian mystery this these three witches you can't tell if they're one or three and i think the way to think of it is that what, what happens with evil is that evil it shat, it shatters the self it divides the self such that one person becomes broken into three fragments. Whereas the Trinity and what makes God, God is that, no, it's three persons as one. And so the three persons are indeed um, whole and full, the communion with each other. So um, I guess the mystery that's on, on view there is, yeah, either you let evil shatter yourself or you let the good, you let God open yourself to communion with others such that you can become one with another but not divided. And I think the the details of evil you're providing, the divisions between the witches, I think it redounds also to the division between Macbeth and his wife, who become further separated, the division between them and the country. You know, he becomes separated from everyone. There's this further divisions. But I don't think those details, as you're mentioning about the witches, are merely theological or merely poetic. I think also, you know, Shakespeare is borrowing from King James demonology, which which detailed accounts like exorcisms, like these practices. Like, you know, for the little class I took in exorcism, there's there's something just factual about there's a part in exorcism where you have to ask for the demon's name in a ritual and whatever and the demon will give random names or stupid names or many names whatever is given you then have to use that name in further prayers of exorcism and there is actually some sort of control so even in real practice 
of casting out evil. I just think this this identity confusion is widely reported, mm-hmm. you know, and can even be worked with. You just I wanted to say one final thing too before we wrap up. I did find this presentation of Shakespeare an advantage in movie form that you wouldn't get on the stage, even if you were sitting front row, such as Father Allen and I have had the privilege to do at a discount rate. You the, you do have with camera work you have more closeness to the physical elements. It's not just words. As you, you're right next to Denzel Washington's head as he's wearing this crown, and you see how silly the crown is. Is it worth it? You see his wife's stress on her eyes. I mean, even the, even the, the, the murder where he takes the knife, he sits on Duncan's bed, presses the knife, not slashes his throat, but presses it into his throat. It's very physical, you know. More, more than theater, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a great advantage of cinema. Regular theater goers to Macbeth wouldn't come away with those intimate impressions of being that close to these characters. Mm-hmm. Another example of that is, was the, the, I love the sound design. Um, there were so many instances in which little things made big sounds, you know, like, like, like the dripping of water or the, the brushing of a branch against the window. To that that was just such a great um, use of the sound to show how yeah when when your conscience is is weighed down or when you are afflicted with the disorder of evil you have trouble gauging the actual um, impression of things and the, and the and uh, the reality of things little things can seem big and big things seem small and you become sin makes you paranoid even even with your senses that's for yeah. sure yeah because there there is this kind of surrealism. Um, both in the the sound and also in the setting. I mean, you never see the whole castle or you never see the limits of things. Uh, you only see parts of the castle and parts of the um, landscape. And so you, you always feel a little bit disoriented. Just to get back to the architecture really quickly, it was very formalist and very simple, right? Because... What Macbeth and his wife are doing is to deny the order of nature. And so makes their, the architecture, the simplicity of their house, seem like a kind of cope, like a kind of way to make up for the actual disorder and mess that they are making in the real world. And so they're trying to artificially construct some simple order for themselves that will restore what they have broken in their own lives. So I think the whole architecture of the house actually is an analog to that famous scene where Lady Macbeth is trying to wash her hands. She misinterprets her own uncleanness as a problem of hygiene, whereas they both have previously misunderstood that order in one's life is fundamentally about God, country, one's soul, justice, and not just an architectural issue. And so the architecture ends up not helping them. It doesn't preserve them from what's coming, the punishment, the comeuppance. And to boot, it's incommodious. You know, it's not, it's not comfortable to live in that kind of minimalist house. I mean, th- this is like a typical criticism of modern architecture. It kind of reminds me of early German, the Bauhaus, for example, is famous kind of minimalist architecture. And its connection to hygiene. And this idea that after World War I, what we need is a kind of new simplicity and really thinking things through and hygiene and a focus on health. Hmm. 
It's really interesting to see in the 16th century play something I think that's also visible in the 20th century. I saw this movie with my my sister, and she commented that the uh, the the sets were she found them platonic, and what she meant by that was that it, you just have these figure these humans walking through these shapes, just these geometric shapes, which the castle is able to embody. Yeah, the the the, the geometric simplicity contrasted with the the disorder and complex uh, nature of of the human goings on. And how today, you know, we, we cover over, you know, an interior lack with sort of this superficial, you know, the cult of exercise, the cult of appearances. It's bad right now. <laughs> but, but to Christian eyes, it's obvious. You're not tending to the garden within. It's all about without. And it's actually more obvious. You know, like when, when Macbeth comes back with bloody hands you know, that, that sort of orderliness is so awkward when you combine it with an interior disorder. It's like there's one bowl of water with which he can wash his hands. There's no hiding. You know, and I think, too, from the eyes of God, caring for the outside, it's, it's a poor way of hiding the interior lack. And then you meet a single prayerful person or wise person, and they just strike you. It's so different, even in this day and age, because there's... You know, they're caring for what's within. But we could say this. We could be in agreement. Good job, Joel Cohen. I'd say yeah. that. And we, we, he's given us such confidence in his films. We're going to go back next time to him and his brother, Ethan Cohen, in the Academy Award Best Picture winner, which is a Cormac McCarthy novel, No Country for Old Men, which is uh, also about violence and interior strife. And all things dark. We're ending with an indie rock anthem, just like the final scene of Macbeth, crown on the ground. And uh, is that it? Did anybody want to get... That's all I got. Anything else? Until soon. The Coens are next. We'll have a full discussion of these brothers. Amen. Well, not amen. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs>